You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome all you weirdos, presumed dead Guthrie siblings, and everyone just happy to have a new reason to call Logan Stumpy. It is time for episode number 84 of the Weird Dose of X, the mutant member of your Weird Science podcast family. I am your host, Jason, broadcasting as always from the Wrong Turn Studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower. And joining me from just before his own mutant powers manifest is my pal, Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how the heck are you today? Good, how are you? Doing great. And don't worry, I'm only here to talk with you. That's the only reason I've come back in time to greet you before your powers manifest. Now, don't worry about any other rumors. Scurrilous. Scurrilous rumors. Uh, so there's not a whole lot of news this week. Uh other than to confirm that you and I will be covering the issues of Avengers that cross over into the fall of the House of X storyline. I asked Jim and Matt if they were planning on doing them on the flagship Marvel Weird Science podcast, and uh, they said... Save that for the X-Men podcast. And uh, No, we don't need that. Jason Rubin. So that's good. Uh, but then one of them said... You're a real crumb well, I thought that was just gratuitous, so I don't know what that's about. But tune in for April, and we will be doing those couple issues of Jed McKay's Avengers that at least have Fall of the House of X written on their covers in the solicit. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, sound like fun? Yeah, sounds good. All right. So today's issues are Wolverine number 42 and Dead X-Men number one. So let's get right into Wolverine. These issues are coming fast and furious twice a month. Uh, this is number 42, Sabretooth War Part 2. Written by Ben Percy and allegedly also by Victor Laval. Pencils by Corey Smith. Inks by Oren Jr. So this is the team who did the second half of the previous issue. Colors once again by Alex Sinclair and letters by Corey Pettit, who I know Jim always calls Corey Petit. And he's probably right, but I'm probably going to keep going Corey Pettit because it's too late to change now. Now, uh, Ruben, you and I both mostly liked the previous issue, right? I, I think I gave it a 7.8. You were around the same area. Uh, we know that uh, Matt Razor is a big fan. I, I also spoke with him today, and he said... I like the killing. So he's he's going to be really happy with this issue. Uh, but you and I, um, I don't know, we're, we're more refined intellectuals of the X-Men universe uh, we had some concerns. Uh, first of all, we didn't see any notable evidence of Victor Laval in it at all. Uh, also, a single issue like Wolverine 41, you know, it's gory, violent, no other real substance. It can be fun, but we said that, boy, if it's going to be just that for a whole 10-issue arc, that seems like a lot. We I still have that concern. Yeah, we had hoped the story would grow to be something a little more complex. So far, n not so much, right? I like this issue, by the way, just to be clear. I'm not, okay. I'm not a fool uh, <laughs> of setting you up in case you do score no, poorly, fine. but I, I still think I don't need eight more issues of this. I need a little bit more, but for what this is, uh, I kind of get, I get it as, as written. Yeah. I, again, I try to take an issue and at least, at least half my brain try to look at it. Is it doing what it's trying to do versus is it doing what I want it to do? Although yeah, I consider both, but I like to at least keep that in mind. So when we left off at the end of issue number 41, Sabretooth and his band of multiversal Sabreteeth had just attacked the greenhouse, a.k.a. Krakoa further north, uh, the new X-Force headquarters. They had probably killed Kid Omega because we think they have his head powering a magic lantern, and they most definitely killed Logan's son, Akihiro, and also that random lobster mutant. 
and use their body parts to spell out happy birthday in the snow. Yikes. So as we begin this issue, Logan is gazing across his birthday message at the crowd of Sabretooth. And we get our first fight scene of the issue between Logan and a bunch of the headless Sabretooth variants that look like mindless ones. Logan loses. He's at Sabretooth's mercy. So Sabretooth immediately kills him, right? Is, it, is, is that what he does? Or at least he chops him into lots of tiny pieces so he takes forever to heal back up? Puts him in a blender? Yeah, like he, does the typical, he does the typical bad guy thing, which is, you know, I'll kill you later, but I'm going to make you suffer by killing right. all your friends first. Yeah, so yeah, that would end this title at issue 42, and we know that Ben Percy's going for issue 50, so he can't do that. Although the Doc Samson Sabretooth, he's clearly the smartest of the crew. He says, hey, that's dumb, let's just kill him now. Uh, but the main Sabretooth disagrees. Yeah, they tie Logan up with adamantium tentacles from an alternate universe version of Omega Red, making this officially Omega Red's most prominent appearance in a Ben Percy book in about six months. Uh, yeah, so is it interesting that some other universe, uh, Omega Red, has adamantium other than carbonadium? Maybe. No. Okay. No. I, I was trying, but no, it isn't. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know why they went into that detail other than to, I guess, to try to make you think it's not the same one, but yeah. I Yeah. Maybe just to make sure, yeah, we're definitely not doing anything interesting with this universe's Omega Red, for sure. Uh, one other note on this scene, Sabretooth says to Logan, quote, I made you a promise before you all tossed me in that pit. That happened in House of X number six, which is a long time ago. And the promise in that issue was, quote, I'm making a list and now you're on it, along with your kids and then their kids. I will make your line extinct, which would seem to tie into the whole Akihiro thing pretty well, except he was addressing the Quiet Council I, and yeah, Wolverine exactly. wasn't even there. So. Yeah. It's a nice try to make some long-term continuity with uh, all the way back to the House and Powers, but doesn't quite land. Yeah, They're I don't not- know. I mean, Wolverine and Charles kind of have a thing, like a mm-hmm. surrogate son relationship. Yeah, there's a thing there, but yeah, I, it, I, I really wanted to, I, I wanted to go back and find that quote and say, oh yeah, there's Logan right there, but unfortunately, he so the rest of this issue shows the saber teeth infiltrating the greenhouse and engaging in a bunch of fights. There's a whole lot of cutting back and forth between the scenes. So I think it makes sense for us to kind of just clump those scenes together. So first, Domino and Laura. Uh, Domino reminds us that Laura wrapped up a birthday present for Logan, once again making us think that Laura is not long for this world. The two ladies are visited by, it, it looks like Logan. It, it isn't Logan, of course. It's that one saber tooth with the crazy camouflage powers. Uh, Camo tooth smacks Domino, uh, knocking her silly. I guess her, her good luck powers just didn't kick in there. Camo yeah, I kept thinking about that in all of these. I was like... Whenever we see Domino, I'm always wondering, because her her powers are so vague and convenient. Oh, well. Uh, Camo Tooth then attacks Laura, who's a tougher opponent, but Lady Sabretooth and the Doc Samson Sabretooth also enter the fight. Lady Sabretooth is about to claw Laura's pretty face to bits when Domino wakes up and shoots her. So maybe that's good luck. I don't know. Domino then gets immediately kicked in the face by Camo Tooth, knocking her silly again. No luck. But this gives Laura the opening to kill Doc Samson Sabretooth. The most sensible of all the saber teeth, so he seems like dead, dead. Uh, Camo Tooth and Lady Saber Tooth are now royally pissed off, and they jointly attack her. We do not see the end of this Laura fight in this issue. So once again, do you think that Laura is like actually dead here, or are we yes. just being strung along? You think she's actually dead? Then? I think she's dead just because of the reaction of Wolverine at three ends when he shows up and um, 
Yeah, he has he has some. He's some got a Laura with face. a with a scream, yeah. and then you see the bloody package. Yep, I'm I'm gonna take the other side of that bet. I think we're being red herring strung along, and I think I think we want to keep Laura in danger for some more issues. I think killing her this early, we already killed Akihiro in issue one. I think they want to keep Laura alive at least a bit, just to have someone for Logan to protect. That's my guess. Uh, but hey, we'll find out. Uh, the other, another scene is uh, involves Sage and Black Tom and the uh, the Canucks. So Sage and Black Tom are still catatonic from that probably Quentin powered magic lantern. Can't hear Laura calling for help. The main saber tooth and the mindless saber teeth find a room full of mutant refugees. And uh, this scene gets really, really gratuitous to me. And unless you're a Matt Razor, I like the killing. I, I think, <laughs> I think maybe. Did you think this went too far? Uh, apparently, I'm a horrible individual who. <laughs> well, we knew that. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't. I just kind of skimmed it. I, I don't. I don't know how to say it. I don't exactly focus on art or think mm-hmm. too much when it's this kind of stuff. I just kind of page through it. So there are some tough images as I'm looking at it. But yeah, it's it's Sabretooth and some of the other ones, and they're just brutally murdering. All these are the refugees, right? These are the people who came to uh, Krakoa further north for safety. A lot of young-looking mutants. Who knows? Because they're mutants, but like uh, the the one who looks like a duck walking around in the back when I've seen him for a while, he has his guts ripped out. Uh, that uh, girl with the tentacles, who is Molly Stanwyck, aka Cephalopod, who's a Grant Morrison character, she's about to get uh, killed. And who comes in? Let's see the oh, the Canadian twins, right? That's uh, Aurora and Northstar. They zoom in and take some kids to the control room where they were able to wake up Sage and Black Tom with a bright flash of light, which is a thing that the twins can do. I didn't really buy the explanation for how they knew this would uncatatonic eyes uh, the Sage and Black Tom. Did you did you think that was that worked? I didn't no, think okay. so. And I also didn't understand why Aurora Northstar didn't just kick ass, because I was under the impression that they were either Omegas or near Omega level. They're both pretty powerful. They're very fast, which should be really helpful in a case like this. But uh, yeah. Just feels like you'd be able to take on some saber teeth. I understand that that they're formidable, but it was a little strange to me that it was just like grab the few. I guess they were focused on survivors, but. Yeah, it didn't seem like there were a whole lot of survivors left. Uh, But now that Black Tom is awake, he's able to activate the greenhouse's Krakoan tech to fight back against the infection of the saber teeth including, it seems, killing the Captain America Sabretooth. So that's another of the Sabretooth-type characters who don't seem available for the rest of the issues, which is an interesting choice. I mean, what happened to Sage and Black Tom in the first place? I didn't really get that either. Like, I know they were in the control center, but were they, like, oh, zapped by some sort of Yeah, in the, in the first issue, they had uh, the Sabretooth, before they even attacked, they had this lantern with a pink light coming out of it, which made uh, us think the- it was... Quentin's the kid one. Okay, right. that's it. I was like, which Sabretooth has the power to put them? Yeah, and that, like that hit the greenhouse and Black Tom and Sage were the ones kind of connected to the sensors there. So it. that's okay. how it got them. Okay. But now they're back up again. Yep. So while all this is going on, what's Wolverine up to? This this is his book, after all. His name's on the cover. Uh, he was strung up by his arms and legs in the greenhouse's open doorway with those Omega Red tentacles, and he's reminiscing about the deceased Akihiro and Kid Omega. Question for you. How does Logan know that Kid Omega is dead? Because he maybe, didn't see that happen. Did he see the lantern head? May, maybe off screen. Like, maybe 
the saber teeth taunted him about it while they tied him up, and we didn't get to see that. Yeah. But I think if we're going to show, oh, woe was me, Logan, oh no, I let my team down and let Quentin die again, we should kind of see him find out about it at least. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, Logan has to get free. So how does he do this? Can't cut through the adamantium. So first, again, really gross scene. Uh, not as inappropriately gross, I thought, as the, the murder of children, but, you know, Wolverine kind of gross. Uh, he yanks his left arm so hard that his freaking hand pops off. Yeah. Uh, he then uses the claws of his right hand to carve through his own wrists and ankles, thereby freeing himself. Very gross. Luckily for him, his claws, adamantium and all, are still intact, which confused me at first. But I think what happens is that when he retracts his claws, they go back into his forearms, like deeper than his wrists. Yeah. So that when his hand pops off, the, the claws are still attached. Is, is that kind of, is that canon? Is that already established? Yes. Yeah. Because there was the um, Age of Apocalypse version where he had like a hand stub, but he was still able to shoot out metal claws out of it. Okay. It makes sense. At first, I was going to say, aha, he should have only bone claws now, but I think it makes sense. So Logan then dashes into the greenhouse on bloody stumps to save his friends, which is both gross and also uh, kind of inappropriately comedic. My brain wanted to fill in these squish, squish, squish sound effects as he stumps along. Uh, Very silly. Uh, Between Logan's claws and Black Tom's organic tech, the rest of Sabretooth's forces are killed or driven out of the greenhouse. This is when Logan rushes to see if Laura's okay. He sees something that horrifies him, but we don't get to see what he sees, not for a couple weeks. And yeah, this is where we're at least definitely supposed to think that young Laura might be dead, which is weird because we thought that maybe she was going to be the one to survive, what with old lady Laura, more or less dead over in the other book, killed off by the high evolutionary. And yeah, that's that's the book. Uh, Last time they decided that uh, they just need one Wolverine. (laughs) Oh, that's going to make people mad on the internet. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Akihiro's gone. Uh, Maybe. Maybe both Laura's gone. I can't imagine they're going forward in the next era with zero Lady Wolverines. But yeah, I guess it's possible. So last time out, I gave the first chapter of Sabretooth War credit for being a pretty good version of the kind of book it was trying to be. To me, this issue feels more along the gratuitous side of things. Yes, somehow even more gratuitous than the happy birthday message spelled out in body parts. It's gorier than the first and didn't really give me any sense of tension or, or thinking, okay, yeah, that was well executed. I don't like the art as much, this issue, either. Although it's the same artist who drew the second half of Chapter 1, the style here is a little different. I think maybe last time they were trying to look like Jeff Shaw, the artist who drew the first half of the book, and this time they're not going the same direction. Whatever they were going for, I didn't particularly care for it, particularly the representation of Logan and Sabretooth's faces. It's not bad, it's just not my preferred style. What did you think of the art? I actually liked it um, for what it was. But again, I don't fixate on art that much. For me, art is usually like, does it annoy me or do I understand what's going on? And I, I could follow all the fights and for sure, you know, absolutely. stuff that was yeah. happening. So I thought it was good. Yeah, I just just a style thing for me. Uh, so I'll say again, uh, I hope this arc isn't going to be eight more issues of ever-increasing blood and gore, which I think the good news is, good and bad news, is I don't think it can be because we're starting to run out of characters. Uh, we're already way down on Sabretooths, and we've got other characters all dying. I don't know who else they're going to kill, so maybe they'll have to do something else going full. But for now, it, it's it's doing what it's trying to do, but I, for me, it's kind of starting to wear out its welcome in the, the gore side of things. 
Uh, so I can't give Wolverine number 42 anything higher than about a, call it a 6.5 out of 10. <laughs> How about uh, that? I think I'll just go with the seven, straight seven. Okay. I mean, this is, uh, it's gory. <laughs> it, it certainly is. It's Ben Percy doing what Ben Percy does. I just think in some of his previous issues, there was a bit more a sense of fun and excitement. And this feels a little more like just a, a slog through blood and guts. Uh, yeah. Also, again, I don't see anything in here that makes me think, oh, yeah, that's that's Victor Laval all over it. Uh, if his name weren't on the cover, I would never guess he had anything to do with it. I did click over to his Twitter account, and he is tweeting out promos for these issues and saying how much fun he had working on it. So I guess he really is co-writing. Uh, again, I, I said this last time, I'll say it again. Maybe in a future issue, we'll see more of his influence. But so far, not so much. Any last comments about Wolverine, or shall we move on? Next is our second and last book of this week. It is Dead X-Men, number one of four, called Earth Intruders, written by Steve Fox, who we had read in his Dead X-Men book. Uh, artists, well, there's three of them. There's Jonas Scharf, Bernard Chang, Vincenzo Caruto. It is an oversized book, more than 30 pages, but seeing three artists does get me a little concerned. Uh, colors by Frank Martin. Letters by Corey Pettit, or possibly Corey Petit. Designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowman. And yet this turned out to be a really interesting issue. What did did you have any real expectations coming into this? Did you know what it was? What did you think when you are about to open up the first uh, the first page? Well, the title's Dead X Men, right? So I was thinking this must be a continuation of the was it Dark X Men? Yes. The, the yeah. So I, I thought it's got to be like in that vein, right? Um, that certainly seemed to be a possibility, yeah. And that's definitely not <laughs> what not, it not, is. not at all. I mean, <laughs> maybe some of the tones slightly here and there, but really a, a very different thing. Yeah. And before we get to spoilers and, uh, and listeners, we, we absolutely will. Uh, potential readers, you should know, this is a book that's playing in the Hickman and Gillen end of the X-Pool. It seems to be almost like a companion book alongside Rise of the Powers of X. So if you're into that and you haven't read this book yet, uh, you should probably go and read it first because uh, the way that uh, Fox lays out the things we're going to talk about is really well done. And we're just going to spoil it all right up front rather than stringing you along. And I think it's more enjoyable to go and, and read it the way it was written. So we won't, you know, we'll, we'll wait here. You go read it. Come on back. Uh, okay, good to go. All right. So, Ruben, you ready for spoiler time? Okay. So, everybody, remember that great bit, my favorite bit. I don't know anybody else liked it. I liked it. At the latest, presumably last Hellfire Gala, where the new team of X-Men was announced, and they all posed looking like absolute, you know, faces you want to slap kind of jerks. And then on the page turn, the entire team gets immediately completely shit-mixed by Nimrod, killing most of them. Uh, well, those characters, those are the characters starring this book. Frenzy, Prodigy, Jubilee, Dazzler, Cannonball. They are... The dead X-Men. I mean, it is what it says on the tin. That was the X-Men team. Uh, they were dead, and here they are. Uh, so that was kind of cool. And I, I guess you could have picked it up looking ahead at the covers and solicitations, but I, I mostly stayed away from that. So I was I was pleasantly surprised. Now, we don't learn right away exactly how they're not dead anymore, but we're left with the impression that they were brought back by the five and the, you know your, your basic mutant resurrection. On the Atlantic portion of Krakoa, which is still inside the White Hot Room. What did you kind of get that? Are you along the side? Are you with me that that's how they came back? Yeah, that 
I struggle with that. I was like, what are things that don't make sense? The first time I read it, I was just like, oh, this is cool. And then the second time I was like, wait, didn't all these people die, right? It kind of like dawned on me. And then I was like, well, what the heck? How could that happen? But then I was like, well, all the five are in the white hot room. So I guess <laughs> like you've got everything you need, right? Like I don't, I guess you don't have the Cerebro helmet, um, but presumably hand yeah, wavy. I'm wondering if white Mother hot Righteous stuff. is involved because we don't really know. We haven't seen Mother Righteous, I think, at all since the end of Immortal X-Men, right? When her attempt at Dominionhood failed. So is she working with Professor X or with the X-Men to bring back, you know, to, to make this resurrection happen? Is she connected to the waiting room? I guess. That's I also guess, outside time and space? Yeah, I guess maybe Professor X can now access the White Hot Room. Maybe he's the one that brings the backups. Could be. Yeah, Steve Fox is not interested in telling us these little details, at least quite yet. He wants to kind of whack us over the head with, here's some crazy crap, and it, it works really well, and, and maybe we'll get those details going forward. There's enough cool stuff here where it feels like it's intentional, right? I, I don't think it's a mistake. So I'm I'm on, I'm on here for the ride. Like, surprise me, right? Give me this cool thing, and then explain it a little bit later. So I'm with him. Let's, let's see so, what he can do. However it happened... Everybody's back. Well, these, the dead X-Men are back. And they're now reporting to Rachel Summers, a.k.a. Ascani, who was in turn working for Charles Xavier. Now, Xavier doesn't actually appear in this issue. He's just referencing the dialogue, and his own words appear on a, on a data page, Ruben. We get a data page. We didn't even mention that in, in Wolverine, there was no data page. It's just assumed now. It, it's just gone. But here it's back. Uh, this data page being a transcript of a conversation between him and Rachel and Rachel uses Rachel refers to eggs in that transcript, which it's got to be the you know the five doing the thing. I'm also curious, like why they think the this is the right team to bring forward. I mean, it's sort of explained a little bit in that data page. I understand prodigies, like the reason for prodigy, but like why did they bring like the entire team? Well, Rachel insists on it. Charles Xavier is like, really, these are the ones you want to use, and maybe she has her own reasons. I think, like from outside of the 616 kind of reasons, from real-world reasons. They were dead. We want to bring back the dead X-Men. People wanted to see this team. Some people were really, really upset that this team, oh, I identify with this character, and you killed him. Now I'm angry. So I think they wanted to bring that team back for kind of marketing-ish reasons. So I, I think that's that's the real reason, but exactly why we need, like, uh Frenzy. We haven't frenzy, seen yeah, Frenzy exactly. do like, anything. Important. I don't know what Frenzy yes. does, even honestly. <laughs> He's like a tough guy, right? Like in Sword, she she was a just yeah, you're, a you're, muscle, you're, right? You're basic tank. You're a strong person. Yeah. Dazzler. There was there was a line about how uh, Dazzler was surprised she could die because at one point there was rumors that she was one of the oh one of those groups that uh, that Apocalypse is part of. Extern externals. externals. Yeah, I think there yeah. was rumors that like she and maybe even Cannonball were externals, and well, clearly they're not because they were very dead. But yeah, they're back. So what is happening here is Rachel is sending this team out to search through the twisted timelines created by Mister Sinister's reality engine. So we were surprised that these dead characters are back. I'm surprised that these dead timelines are still you know out there accessible. I guess you know if you're Rachel Summers. All timelines are accessible. Their job is to find somewhere a living and still human version of Moira McTaggart, which is going to be, we don't know exactly when uh, Mr. Sinister started up his Moira engine, right? We, the first time we saw it was in Immortal Number 1, but the implication was it was going on in the background 
you know, without us noticing for a long time. And Moira goes robot in Inferno. So there's going to be a pretty tight stretch of time that's going to be accessible in these timelines and also still has a human Moira. So I think that's why they're kind of limited. I'm a little, I was going to say, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with one of the concepts here, which is I'm okay with these timelines still existing. I can see that. Like if you had a chart, right, of timelines, I, I could see them like they basically end once Moira dies, right? But it would still exist in like a... In a time you know, travel sense, right? If you're in yeah. that timeline moving forward through time, you've reached the end of the line. Yeah. But we see we see them go to a timeline and they're like, oh yeah, there's no Moira here. But the timeline's still there. I'm like, that. that's the part I struggle with. It's like, okay, there should always be a Moira alive somewhere if if you're there. Otherwise, what was going on, right? The only thing well, I'm going to say is... There is a Moira, but the Moira who matters in that those timelines is the one in the Moira engine, right? Somewhere in each of these timelines, there's still a Moira engine Moira alive uh, okay. until they get killed. And that's what Okay, okay. So that's what's going on. Okay, I didn't yes. follow that part. Okay, that because helps me a lot because I was like, okay, if the Moira was here and you killed her, then wouldn't the timeline be gone? Multiple Moiras, Mr. Sinister, confusing yeah. guy. That's what it is. Yeah. Okay. okay, I got it. And once they find a living human Moira McTaggart... And the Moira Prodigy. engine one doesn't have all the information anyways, right? So you can't just go to it. because it's the, yeah. Maybe she does. I think they all have all the old memories of Moira McTaggart in their head, but that's not the one they're looking for. They're looking for the one running around loose, and when they find a human living Moira McTaggart, Prodigy... Uh, they've done, Rachel's done some unblocking things in his mind. So he just reads everybody's mind all the time now. So he's just kind of running around reading minds. When he gets close enough to Moira, he's going to suck into his brain her entire, you know, history, her multiple histories, her own multiple timelines, just a, a mental map of her whole twisted past. Bring that back to Xavier. He's going to use that map to find a time and place to visit where he can meet Moira in her 10th life, but before her mutant powers manifest at age 13. And what is he going to do when he gets there? Well, in this issue, Rachel tells the teen, well, he just wants to talk to her. He wants to have a conversation <laughs> with her, you know, maybe clear up some misunderstandings, you know, very, very chill, very calm. And you believe but that? <laughs> those of us who have read Rise of the Powers of X number one, yeah. remember the last page of that book, where Xavier himself tells Rasputin IV that his plan is to find Moira before her powers manifest and kill her. So someone here is not fully in on the real plan. Do you think Rachel knows what the real plan is? or And she's hiding it? Or you think Xavier, he's the one who's lying even to her? Yeah, I think it's just lying again. Probably. I mean, it is Professor X. It's what he does. So that'll be a fun scene. Once that comes out, I think. Oh, and by the way, Rachel, she's not physically in the white hot room with the team. She's communicating with them telepathically from No Place X. Again, very tightly connected to Rise of the Powers of X here. Yeah, so I was wondering, is she one of the, you know, one the, of the blacked um, out names? Unrevealed, yeah. Yeah, I, I think probably one of the, there's two redacted names in that list of Xavier's team members in Rise of the Powers number one. I'm sticking with my prediction that Manifold is going to turn out to be the other, Yeah, but that's still that's still unknown. So that's what's really going on here. And like I said, Steve Fox does not lay this out, you know, straightforwardly from the beginning. We start off with a very cold open, uh, which is a, a fun, confusing thing. We see the team members who should be dead. We see them attacked by flying vampire monkeys. Okay. Uh, and only then do we get a narration box telling us that we're in temporal location 
Moira Engine 3.9, which that was a really good reveal. That letting me know in that narration box, oh, we're in the sinister timelines, the Moira Engine timelines. That was super cool. Did not expect to see Moira Engine craziness in this title. So this team is about to be killed by this timeline's evil version of magic with a K. They get pulled out in the nick of time by Rachel, and it's at this point that we get most of our necessary, necessary backstory filled in, and we're left a little bit less abused. All that stuff we told you out front, it kind of comes in this middle scene. And uh, did you think this was a, a good technique to kind of drop us in out of the blue at first and then explain things later? Yeah, it was okay. It, it, it This sort of stuff's been happening enough over the last five years that I'm, I've been trained to just go with it. I'm like, oh, this is weird, but I'm sure this will be explained. <laughs> yeah, I think it was better than just starting with exposition. You know, give us the shock, give us the team, give us the reveal of, oh, Moira stuff is going on. And then having Rachel explain it, I thought, worked quite well. Oh, by the way, that evil magic timeline, it may be a callback to a vision Destiny had in Immortal number 3, where one of the futures she envisioned right after being resurrected, remember, she kind of wasn't in control of her powers. There was a montage page with all these possible futures. One of them looked a lot like this. That's pretty what? cool. It could be a coincidence. I mean, magic is always kind of on the edge of going evil anyway. <laughs> so I'm going to choose to believe it's uh, on purpose. Uh, and this magic is only about magic. Yeah. All of this, all that first scene and the exposition is about 10 pages into a 30 page book. So pretty efficient story storytelling. Mm -hmm. After the exposition talk, Rachel sends the dead X-Men onto their next timeline. Uh, and it seems like they've been at this a while. You know, again, we join this team in progress. There's not a lot of timelines left, so they darn well better find Human Moira real soon. This location is Temporal Location Moira Engine 2.4, and I haven't traced all these numbers back. I'm going to assume that they, they make sense and they're correct with what we've seen of Mr. Sinister. This is 15 years after the end of Earth. In this world, a certain sneaky someone got her way, sort of. Uh, Ruben, how about you tell us who was that certain sneaky someone <laughs> and how happy were you to see her? Um, I was relieved because of what was being discussed in Slack. I mean, as soon as you guys started saying like, oh, Ruben's going to like this issue, um, I knew Brand would be in here some in some respect, right? But It is. Abigail Thanriagwax's brand herself. Yeah. But having having a title, Dead X-Men, and then you guys <laughs> being like, oh, yeah, Abigail's going to show up. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> Some of the art was released. It was one of those things where they sent out a few pages with no dialogue balloons. Yeah, and I, I don't look at any of that. Yeah. So I, this was a big surprise to me other than the Slack. Um, but yeah, I was happy with it. I mean, it's not the, this doesn't answer like what happened to Abigail after she had a run in with Fisher King, but it was fun for me to see her. And I liked the, this universe being the like, what if Abigail and her sort of like cause galactic strife timeline, you know, to like, Put her in charge kind of timeline had played out so it was fun for me i enjoyed it i really I, I particularly liked the line where you know they did the quick download on her and then say oh, this was going on and then she was humbled and then she's like that's all right except i wasn't humbled <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's in character for sure yes i was like that's so awesome she's yeah, so this <laughs> abigail brain <laughs> she she was a manipulator she was always trying to play all sides at once and here she succeeds in manipulating the galaxy into going to war which she thought was going to bring the mutants, and mostly herself, even to greater power. But here she was in turn being manipulated by Orbis Thalaris. So I'm thinking this timeline is related to the one where Orbis kind of makes it to Dominion Hood 
you know, before Enigma swoops in, whether it's the, the, the main line or a tributary somewhere, somewhere in that cluster of timelines. So the few surviving mutants wind up living atop a space whale and being led by Abigail Brand. Uh, there's a, a cool line where, uh, uh, who is it who says, Abigail Brand leading the X-Men? Oh, this is not a good future. That was, that was a good line <laughs> by one of the dead X-Men. Yes. Yes. Uh, so the, our team of dead X-Men are rescued slash captured by Brand, but not before they're spotted by a shadowy figure with a deep, deep Scottish accent. So not too hard to figure out who that might be. I thought they'd leaned into the Scottish thing kind of a little too hard here, but oh well. Uh, so we see some other crazy stuff in this timeline. We see the Phalanx attacking Brand's X-Men from Mysterium. We see a new version of the Starjammers now led by, well, it looks like it's led by Sunspot. But well, then Captain Marvel calls Lockheed the Dragon Captain. So I guess the dragon's in charge, actually. That's fun. Uh, Orbis Stellaris gets his orb smashed by Cannonball and Smasher's Kid. Uh, we see Prodigy get a fragment of the exploded Macron crystal embedded in his chest, which I presume has consequences down the road, because that's a thing. But right now, it's Moira who's after that Macron fragment, which conveniently brings her close enough for Prod Prodigy to absorb her memories. So. Mission accomplished, more or less, but they still have to get home, and Moira has her own plans. Uh, Moira's built her own timeline-spanning device. It's an axe that has, it has all the good stuff in it, right? Yeah, it has, I, it's kind of ridiculous, but I kind of liked it, because it was, it is know, over it's the like top. the X-Men lore axe that is like, yeah. Yeah, it, it's like little kids are playing, and I know mine has this and this, oh, mine yeah. has this, this, and that. I think it was the Zorn black hole that I thought was like, okay, you did it. <laughs> yeah, let's let's lay it all out. It has starters, adamantium, carbonadium, and vibranium, harvested from Omega Red, a Logan skeleton, and the mutant gentle, respectively. It also, yes, contains the severed head of Zorn. That is the Zorn with the black hole, not the Zorn with the living star. Morris says that all she needs to complete her device is a bit of um, <clears throat> a wee shard of mysterium. <laughs> uh, which confused me a little, as the art makes it look like she's after the Macron crystal. I don't know if that's an art problem or a me problem, but in the text, she's after the Mysterium. Does, does Mysterium sometimes look like glowing red crystal? No, that's I, the I Macron know. crystal that she ultimately gets and uses. But I think the reason she's following them is because they say the last bits of Mysterium are on the brand Krakoa spaceship. All right. Yeah, it, maybe it's just... I, I would thought she was after the, the crystal. And what does Moira want to do with this device? Well, she says she's going to, quote, cut a path back to my very first life, start all over again, and make sure Moira always wins. A really strong ending. Did you, uh, did you love that last line as much as I did? Yeah. And oftentimes I don't really like these sort of, um, you know, alt version villains, but this one seems pretty cool. And we've been told, you know, that one of her big agenda things is that she is so scared of like ultimate death right yes so it really makes sense to me it's like yeah this is they're all going to be wanting to survive right and this one's kind of already gone through hell so it has mm -hmm. even more motivation to you know try to fix things and she's unquote. not alt universe like in the way the different saber tooths are because this timeline is something that just branched off of our main timeline but then was undone so it's not like they can do anything wacky off to the side and oh it's it's moira and she's you know, she's also Glob Herman at the same time. Oh, they combine. No, it's, it, it makes sense. Uh, and I love the callback to, you know, the always wins, always loses thing, right? Because what drives Moira life after life is her seeing that the mutants 
always lose. That was the thing. Or we can't tell people that we always lose. And then Omega Sentinel, we saw, tell Nimra that in her timeline, the mutants always win. And now Moira is only out for Moira. She wants to win. So that's fun. And so we kind of seem to have a race now between Xavier seeking out young Moira in her 10th life and this Moira seeking out her young self in her first life is what I think she's going for. So her magic axe here, I think, can go back through all her own timelines. And I don't know exactly what she's going to do when she gets there. What do, what do you think is going to happen when Moira meets Moira? I don't know. I guess maybe she warns her enough. I mean, the it's weird because it's a child, but it, it has all the memories, right, of everything that's come before. Well, I think she's going for her very first life as a child. Oh. So I think this will be back to when she knows nothing except, you know, the 12 years or so that she's actually been alive like a regular person, mm -hmm. I think. She does say, a path back to my very first life. Yeah, good point. Yeah, before she's realized that she's a mutant. Yeah, so I is giving all the information to herself as a little kid, and now that kid has her own 10 possibilities, but she starts off with all the information from a previous set of 10 lives? Yeah, hard to I don't say. Know. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So a lot to chew on here. Uh, uh, I I am a little concerned that I remember we, we liked the way Steve Fox started the Dark X-Men mini, and we weren't so thrilled about the ending. So there is that, that possibility there, but it feels so tied in with what Kieran Gillen's doing that it, I, I really hope this this means something. I hope this is I hope this is important to the main story. I'm definitely on board here. It feels tighter, so I'm I'm gonna I'm kind of inclined to trust this one a little more. I'm, I'm on board for now. This book plays with all sorts of pieces I never expected to see again. Makes this strong connection to Rise of the Powers of X. Good stuff. I do want to talk talk art for a second. There's three artists listed, and while I don't know exactly who did what, I'm not. I don't know artist styles well enough to to pick out which page or which artist, and it doesn't say. Uh, you can see the seams here. Uh, I wasn't so into the art in that first bit. The faces have that uncanny valley feeling for me. Uh, Cannonball in particular drawn way too much like handsome Squidward from that episode of SpongeBob. I put those pictures up in the Slack, and yeah, I, it almost looks like he used it for for reference. It's it's right there. But from about page 12 onward, it changes, and I like that look much better. A splash page of Brand's X-Men fighting the Phalanx. Uh, Ruben, I, I think you probably want that poster for your bedroom or your office. <laughs> that is a wicked cool page. I like that a lot. Yeah, that was definitely cool. Uh, also, the montage page of Prodigy absorbing Moira's multi-life memories. Great stuff. I just wonder, why do we need three artists on a single issue? That that bugs me. I want, you know, in my ideal world, one artist would draw an entire series to have, you know, we have a consistent writing voice, a consistent artistic vision. I, I really love it when you have that look all the way through. And now we can't even get one artist to finish one issue. Yeah, it just made me wonder, like, was there a what major rewrite of the story, right? Was this the plan all along or did something go... Uh, I mean, over on the DC side, uh, if you're on the Slack, you saw us picking apart a couple pages in the was it the world's finest annual, the one with the the fifth dimensional imps, mm -hmm. and we kind of all poked at that page, and we kind of at least put together a story that made sense to us of how things had to be changed, and that's why they brought an extra artist. But here, the story doesn't feel like anything had to change, so I'm I'm just curious why that happened, and, and I, I wish Marvel would would be able to get one consistent artist. I, I know it's hard. I know art takes a long time. But just as a comic book reader and enjoyer, I value the art, and that's why I want to see this consistent vision. And by the way, I looked ahead to solicits for issue number two. 
more different names as pencilers, even beyond the three on this issue. So that's that's not. But as much as the inconsistent art bugs me, this is a story I, I need to read more. Last week, I said that Resurrection of Magneto felt like it was engineered in a lab to be not for me. Well, this is the opposite. This was like, let's find all the things Jason loves and Ruben loves, and let's put them all in one book. So I'm going to give Dead X-Men number one, uh, let's say, how about an 8.9 out of 10? That's an 8.8 plus a .01 bonus for Abigail Brandon. Nice, nice. All right. <laughs> okay, Ruben, where are you? I should, I should be higher than I am. I'm going to go to an 8.5. I really liked that's, it. That's, but that's a good score. Yeah. but um. That's a sort of a cautious eight five given. I didn't think dark. I think I was more positive at the end with Dark X Men than you were, but um, I'm just a little worried that this the Steve Fox is maybe not the right writer to do like a huge chapter that you have to follow if you care about the time travel stuff. But it isn't what we've seen of him before. But yeah, the Dark X Men experience has me a little concerned. But issue number one of this was was really good and. If you didn't take my warning before, you didn't read it before listen to us, go back and read it. It's a good book. We really like it. I would say this is, if you're picking up books that and you care about the end of Krakoa, like, I'd say you got to read this one. More, more than I would say X-Men, which is pretty bad. Although a bit, we've been promised that X-Men 31 is a big deal, but we'll see. Oh, yeah, we've also complained that there's, it feels like there's two things going on. There's the actual moving the story forward that's happening in Rise of the Powers and, and also now in Dead X-Men. So this is definitely part of that. This is not a part of the, oh, some things happen in the past that don't really matter, like in X-Men and in Iron Man and those kind of books. So this feels like a very relevant current day kind of book. So good stuff. Yeah. I guess that's a really good point. This does feel very grounded in what we're supposed to care about right now. It's certainly grounded in what I care about. All right, so next week we have just that X-Men number 31 issue that uh, Ruben says is going to be really important. And I hope so, because that's that's the only book we have next week. Although we may <laughs> throw in some bonus coverage of that other Hickman Marvel project with the, the dots in the title. So yes. if I can get caught up in time, Ruben and I will have a little talk about what's happening in Gods. Yeah, Sound I really like, like that book, by the way, as it's been going along. Um, oh, good. I, have, so I, I do want to talk yet, about so it. Good. Wonderful. So, uh, Ruben, what should our listeners do after reading Dead X-Men number one and before our next episode? Yeah, go back and read Judgment Day. And, Save uh, that for the X-Men. <laughs> Not Judgment Day. What was the... Uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, Sins of Sinister. Go back and read Sins of Sinister. That's the one I meant always, to say. Always good advice. Sins of Sinister. Absolutely. Yes. Bye-bye.